Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Anish and Ganesh, co-founders of Cortex, an internal developer portal that's raised over $52 million in funding. Anish, Ganesh, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having us. Not a problem. So let's just begin with some quick backgrounds and bios on both of you. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Anish. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Cortex. I've been building Cortex for about four years now, and it was largely based on our previous experiences as engineers. I used to work at Uber. Uh, it's like the classic case when microservices gone wrong. Uh, there were probably a few hundred services on my team, and it became really difficult to understand basic things like who owned each service and whether these services were following best practices and things like production readiness or security standards. Uh, we would often track all of this in multiple spreadsheets, which would always go out of date when you needed them, especially because half the services were named after TV shows or just random things engineers liked. And so those engineers would create these services, leave the company, There'd be an incident and suddenly you have no idea what the service is or the business context about the service, which leads to longer MTTR and just like overall parts of the business. Uh, Realized that this is a problem that every company faces and ended up starting Cortex with Ganesh and our other co-founder Nikhil. And it's been an awesome journey so far. What was that like working at Uber? I see it was 2015 to 2019. That must have been a a pretty interesting period because I think all the drama, everything happened with Travis in what, like 2017? So halfway through your time there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I always tell people Uber was an interesting case study for me on on how to develop culture. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway I had when we started Cortex. And that's why I think we take our cultural values so seriously. And I think it's just plays such a big impact on how the company grows. So that was a, it was a lot of learning, not just from like a technical perspective, but cultural as well. Yeah, that's amazing. What did you take away from your time at Uber if you had to choose like one big takeaway? I think it probably was... Like the one thing Uber really got right was designing for scale and like at a scale that when you were designing it, you probably had, you know, you would think it'd be crazy if you had like 100 times the number of rides that Uber was designing for. But that's how big the team at Uber would think. And I think that's kind of some of the values we have on the engineering team here, where like even early on, we designed systems that, you know, we probably needed like 50 times the number of customers (laughs) like required to actually uh, stress test it. But I'm glad we did it that way because now our systems are so resilient when it comes to actually scaling and growing with some of our enterprise customers. Hmm. Super interesting. And Ganesh, what about you? Yeah, for me, I'm Ganesh. I'm one of the co-founders in CTO Cortex. Before Cortex, I was at a company called LendUp in Mission Lane in FinTech. And I had the opportunity to, to see the monolith microservice journey all the way from the very first service we pulled out all the way to 100 plus by the time I left. And very, very similar stories in each, you know, first couple of services, it was fairly straightforward to keep everything straight in your head. And then by the time you got to 100 plus, it became pretty difficult. And all the challenges around not knowing who owns what, what things do, getting people to care about things like reliability standards and production checklists. And yeah, eventually got bad enough that I decided to start Cortex. And I think the great thing was, you know, the companies that I was at was were much smaller and they, you know, anywhere from 50 to 100 engineers. The fact that we had the exact same problems as Anish to Uber and Nikhil at Twilio was a very clear sign to us that like, hey, there's there's something here to be solved if we just put our hands to it and, and try to figure it out. 
And as you were working in all these different roles as an engineer, did you always have in the back of your head that someday you would go on to be a founder and, and start a company or where did that come from? Definitely. It was always something that I think we intended. And the funny story is that me and Ish Nikhil tried different things before. Right before Cortex, we were working on a meme discovery app and we were, we were not meant for for social and we were definitely cut out to be enterprise founders. Funnily enough, we ended up using a lot of our code for this particular product to be able to reuse things, but that was our, our attempt before this. <laughs> That's awesome. Let's dive a bit deeper into the origin story. So it looks like things really started in November 2019. So take us back to 2019. What was going on? What were those early conversations like? And how'd you decide on this problem specifically? Yeah, I think for me it was, I got paged one night and it was like 2 a.m. or something. And I it was like some weirdly named service that Anish was describing. And I was like digging through Confluence, trying to figure out what this thing was, because we were on call for like domain area. So like it was like the payment system or whatever that was. And so it was not necessarily all the code you would touch. And so trying to figure out what the service was doing and then like who I should escalate it to. And you spend like 30 minutes just digging around. It's like the last thing you want to be doing at 2 a.m. And this was also around the time where we were spinning up a ton of services. We'd made it really easy to spin up new services. And we were like putting together onboarding materials. And like every week we had to go and update those things just because there was so much context. And we're at a brewery, I think Thirst Free Tap Room or something in, in SF. And uh, we were sitting around and just chatting. And I was asking Anisha and Akil, like, how do you guys, how do you guys solve this? You know, like, what is the system you guys have? And it's like, it's the exact same thing. We just slack each other until we figure out who owns a certain thing and what that thing does. And that was the moment of like, oh man, like we got to start building. And so we just started hacking on weeknights and weekends and ended up building something from there. And what was interesting is we did a lot of market validation too, in conjunction to doing all these things. We realized that a lot of the companies that had adopted microservices over the past 10 years, they ended up building internal versions of Cortex. And when we would cold email and talk to the head of engineering of these internal tools, the common answer we would get is that these tools ended up becoming some of the most useful and popular tools internally within the engineering team. And it was used in a variety of use cases, whether it was you know reliability or security initiatives or just tracking basic service ownership for compliance reasons. And that's when we realized that, well, if every company is building this internally, there's probably an appetite for a larger market here. What were those first early paying customers like? How'd you acquire those? <laughs> it was a lot of cold emailing. And a lot of asking people for intros to whoever we could find. I think what was interesting about the early market was that it was such a new market that we were not only trying to sell the product, but also educate people on the different kinds of problems they had. Because Cortex, there was no incumbent doing what we're doing. I think it made it particularly challenging in the early days to convince people to actually pay for this. Because people are so used to their Excel spreadsheets and Google Docs that they almost weren't realizing the negative ROI that this was having on developer productivity. And so I remember our first customer ever was a cryptocurrency uh, Ripple. And that was just a cold email to one of the SREs who worked there. And he previously worked at LinkedIn where they had a service catalog tool. And he actually remembered how valuable it was to the overall SRE team. It was a really valuable first sale for us. I think it was like $150 per month or something. But what it taught us was that SREs in particular really identified with the problem that we're solving. And it also just really shaped our go-to-market strategy, which to this day really focuses on SRE and reliability teams because they resonate uh, with the emotional pain that we solve. 
And does cold emailing still work? Is that still a tactic that you're using? So I, I see a lot on LinkedIn that it's dead and then people fight in the comments. Is cold emailing dead? Definitely not. In fact, we've seen even cold calling end up with a lot of success for us, which is, I would have never bet with that, but we have people on our team who, I think it's just such a strong value prop around who owns what service. And every SRE has a horror story about that being a problem at one of their previous companies or current company. And so I think it's kind of, it just helps us have that initial conversation. Makes a lot of sense. In terms of growth and adoption, are there any numbers that you can share today? Yeah, absolutely. We're lucky in that the problem that we're solving, even in today's economic environment, is top of mind for a lot of engineering leaders. Even in the face of layoffs and, and reduction in forces, I think every engineering leader is thinking about how to drive developer efficiency and how to drive accountability across the engineering team. And Cortex hits on those themes pretty acutely. And so we've been able to grow 400% over the past year. And we work with some amazing companies like Grammarly and SoFi, companies that have scaled their engineering teams and services and have adopted Cortex as their developer portal across the entire company, which I think it really just helps with the uh, use cases there. I spent some time on your website prior to the interview, and, and what I noticed is that the messaging is very clear, it's very crisp, but I walk away actually understanding what you do. Was your messaging always that way, or what was the journey like to get your messaging to be so clear and crisp? I think in some cases, maybe we might have been overly clear back in the day. I think that the vision and the mission has kind of expanded over time. When we first started Cortex, it was really just around, let's help you catalog your services, let's help you understand ownership, you know, it's all of that stuff in one place. And over time, it's kind of expanded into this like system of record. It's like Cortex is the one source of truth for all this information about your engineering ecosystem. We're like we're connecting with all of your tools. And so the mission has expanded. And so I think the challenge has actually been, how do we continue keeping our messaging concise and like very use case specific? Because the thing that made us successful, like Anish said, was targeting this very like deep emotional pain that people were facing with this complexity. And so we wanted to make sure we didn't lose that from our messaging. So it's actually been the challenge of like continuing to keep it very crisp and concise. One thing that I've I've heard a lot from technical founders who've been in the podcast and just founders I've worked with is that technical founders are normally very good at what they do, but marketing is not one of those things that they're very good at. And it's a, a skill they have to really learn and, and develop. Did you both start off not knowing really anything about marketing and had to learn from the ground up? Or did you have some exposure to marketing at some point throughout your careers before founding Cortex? I don't think either of us really had had much show <laughs> background in that. What was that journey like then? Where do you even start if you're starting from ground zero with marketing? Like, where did you both begin to to really you know, get to the point that you're at now, where you have just great marketing? It looks like. I think Y Combinator helps a lot with this. Their messaging has always been just be as concise and as simple as you can everywhere on the website and in your sales pitch. And I think especially for our target market where. Developers can instantly sense when you're trying to sell something to them. In the early days, it was really helpful just focusing on exactly what the solution was and then really honing in on the different ways we help with like the emotional pain of being a developer or an SRE. And so I think that was something we that like we learned just through the Y Combinator program. And a lot of doing as well. Like I think we'll tell every founder is there's nothing that beats actually doing the thing. You know, for the longest time, we didn't really understand what product marketing was, even though we were doing it out of practice. But the fact that like messaging and how to position things is so important was something that we're just doing out of necessity because we're like, how the hell do we convince people to use this thing? Like, how do we speak their language? And later on, we realized like, oh, what we're, what we're doing is product marketing to some degree. And so I think just doing the thing and being very hyper-focused on solving 
the most pressing need for your company is probably the thing that's going to teach you how to do these things. You know, necessity is the mother of all invention. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. What about your market category? So I introduced you as an internal developer portal. I think I had gotten that from a, a news article or a media article that came out about you. Is that the category or what is your market category? I would say that it's definitely internal developer portal. I think it's something that has evolved and grown over time. Initially, when we first started Cortex, I think everyone was calling our products microservice catalog, which we never really liked. I think it was a very, it's almost like a fraction of what the total value you can get from Cortex. The catalog is really just the foundation of the product. Developer portal, I think, is a much better way to encompass how companies adopt the product because it ends up being this almost universal system that connects your development team with your SRE team, your security team, your leadership, and it uses the service as like that atomic unit that that drives all the productivity gains you see. But yeah, I would say that IDP is generally something that you would use to categorize our company now. And when we look at the IDP space, what does that look like? What's the competitive landscape look like? Yeah, I would say that it's emerging really quickly. I think there is a few commercial products that are on the same size as us. I think they've raised their Series A. We see a lot of like copycat clones coming up, which is a really good thing, actually. I always appreciate when I see a newer startup enter our market because you can't be a category of one, obviously. And so it's really nice to see the competition. And I think it makes our product better as well. But then you also have some of the larger players like Datadog and Atlassian who started to release their own service catalog products. And then on top of that, the super popular open source project, Spotify Backstage, which is probably one of the best things that ever happened to our market. It's one of the fastest growing GitHub projects in terms of stars. And I think it educated just tons of companies on the value of the internal development portal. And we actually have a really nice integration with Backstage that lets you use our Scorecards product with their offering. And so we end up working with a lot of Backstage customers and we're just generally pretty close to their development. What about analyst relations? What role does that play? It's definitely growing. Gardner just put out a market guide on internal developer portals. And I'm sure there's going to be a magic quadrant there soon. We try to brief them frequently just so that they're aware of how we're developing. And I think generally this category is becoming more mainstream. I always tell people that I think the internal developer portal category will be the same as APM one day, where if you look at the APM category, there's like 40 different APM tools, uh, but then there's you know one clear winner with, with Datadog. And uh, I think internal developer portal category will grow the same way. What are you going to do to ensure that you have that type of domination in the category? Yeah, keep listening to customers and building what they need. I think that's one of the exciting and daunting things about building a new category is there's nothing that you can just look to and say like, I'm going to copy that, you know, other than <laughs> the copycats that, that pop up. But it's like, there's no real incumbent in the space. And so a lot of it is, hey, well, how do we how do we think this space should look like? And then more importantly, where are customers taking us? Like obviously customers taking all kinds of different directions, but if you pay close attention, they're generally pulling you in, in a couple very clear directions. And I think you just kind of follow that journey a little bit. And a lot of the features that we built have been thanks to that. So as long as we maintain that in our culture of just constantly listening to customers, solving customer needs, 
they'll tell you like, oh, it would be so cool if Cortex did X. You already have all this data. Why don't you do that? It's like, oh yeah, you're absolutely right. Like we should definitely do that thing. So I think that's the thing that'll just keep us going down this path. What's keeping you guys up at night? Honestly, it's probably the rate at which the market is developing. And just and kind of going back to Ganesh's answer, just making sure that we're building the right things. Because like Ganesh said, the data that we collect becomes so valuable to so many different stakeholders. So we work oftentimes very closely with 10 or 11 different teams, all of which have competing priorities when it comes to the data inside of Cortex. And so, for example, we're very, very close partners with the security team and the SRE team who have the same emotional pain of how do I get developers to follow best practices? But the way they use the data is very different. And so you almost have these competing roadmaps and and priorities when it comes to making sure you're building for the right persona. And so as with any startup, you, you have a limited number of resources to attack a very core set of problems. And focus is the name of the game. And so I think I think what keeps me up at night is just making sure we're we're constantly challenging the things that we're building and, and making sure it's the right thing to build in the moment. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over 52 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? It's an interesting question. I think a lot of it comes, especially creating a new category. I think what we've learned over time is your fundraising, it's all storytelling. I mean, obviously it becomes part of like metrics and all these things are super, super important. But a big part of it is like, how do you tell your story in a way that it resonates with people who are maybe not in the weeds and understand the pain as much, right? It's like when we're talking to SREs, we talked about the emotional pain, we connect them with them very easily. We're engineers, where we're talking to executives, they understand the pain from their perspective. But investors, you know, they're, they have a much broader view of the landscape and they're not in the weeds writing code every day. They're not getting paged at night and not knowing what to deal with. And so how do you take them on this journey of hey, here's here's why this has become a problem in the first place. Here's how painful it is. Here's why people care about it. And how do you tell that story in a way that you can open their eyes to the possibilities of what this can be five years from now, 10 years from now, and showcase how much you learn? And because one of the things that especially early stage investors are looking at is like, how quickly can you learn? How quickly can you adapt to changing market conditions and changing learnings and all these things? And I think really highlighting the storytelling and how much you learn and how quickly you can learn and what you learned is super, super important as part of the fundraising process. Have you always been a gifted storyteller or was that a skill that you had to really learn as well? I think it's something you learn over time. Yeah, absolutely. I used to do speech and debate and I felt like that really prepped me for this role in a weird way. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Like myself and, and Ganesh, we have done fundraising together the entire journey. And I think being able to tell the story from our point of view, having that personal pain point, I think that's what gave us credibility with investors like Sequoia and why they took a bet on a category that doesn't even exist. Early on, did you have conversations with investors to say, hey, this is a category creation play? Absolutely. Yeah, because one of the first questions investors ask you is about the competitive landscape. And at the time, there wasn't even companies like Datadog and Atlassian in our category. And so it really was just spreadsheets. And I think what really helped was having references and and just different case studies of companies that had built this internally and being able to reference why they did that. I think that that really helped. But I always tell other founders that building a new category is like building a company on hard mode. It's already hard, but it's almost like you're adding this layer of complexity on top of that. And you're not only having to prove that 
your company is meeting the milestones needed for the next round of funding. You're also needing to prove that this category is going to be a 10, 50, $100 billion category in the next 10 years. Because at the end of the day, that's the kind of market size that is appealing to investors, especially in the growth stage. And so I think you're constantly needing to prove that this category is growing, that the market is growing, and just pointing to different data points, both internally and externally, that validate that. Let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? Learn sales even faster than we did. <laughs> I think I always, I always joke that, you know, looking back in hindsight, so much of building a business is learning how to sell your product. Like you've got to build something and you have to sell it. We were so focused on just building something that would solve a problem that I didn't really internalize how much of the job was going to be about convincing other people to use the thing that we built, even though it made complete sense to us that people should be using it. And so obviously we like have learned how to do sales and marketing and all these things over time, but especially as technical founders, it's like how we have learned it even faster, tried more things, experimented even more, and just accept that like a lot of the job is going to be this go-to-market stuff that didn't come natural to us as engineers. Were there any sales books that really had an impact on you or you found especially useful? None that come to mind. I think it was really just around like putting yourselves in the customer's shoes. Like how do you, if you are being sold to, how would you want to be sold to, especially as developers? Like it's it's a very, it's a very difficult thing to sell to developers. And we know that because that's who we were. And so I think just putting ourselves in those shoes and thinking about like what needs to happen for this person to be convinced that this is going to bring value to their life. I think just that was the main thing that we just kept going back to over and over again. Anish, what about you? What would be your number one piece of advice if you were starting again from scratch? Honestly, I was thinking the exact same thing as Ganesh. And I guess the reason we have the same answer is just because it was so painful at the beginning. We must have heard 80 no's and 80, like, I don't have this problem. And what's funny is a lot of those people are actually now Cortex customers. And I think the big thing that changed was just we learned how to connect with them and actually sell the product that, that addressed like, the, the emotional pain that they had. And I think it's a skill that you really can learn. And like we had read about it in, in podcasts and in different books that, you know, like Ben Horowitz's book. And everyone tells you that at the end of the day, be, building a company is just constantly selling, selling the vision, selling the product, selling your story. But nothing beats just constantly doing it and constantly getting rejected. And then eventually you learn different parts of the messaging that start resonating and I think we just iterated until we found something that, you know, worked. And and myself and Ganesh, we closed the first million without any sales help, like external sales help. And I think that also just gave us this like deep appreciation on how to sell. And it helped us recruit our first couple account executives who were just outstanding because we could tell what good looked like. What have you learned from that transition away from founder-led sales? That's something else that I've heard from a lot of founders is they they really struggle with it and it can be very difficult to do. I think it kind of goes back to enablement and like the whole idea of marketing and positioning and all this stuff. Like we we're so steeped in it and we think about it, you know, 24/7 that it it feels to us like, oh, like it's so obvious that people should be able to sell it. But actually, when people are coming in brand new to this thing that we started, we built, like we know so intimately. Like, how do you train people to think in the same way or understand the thought process of us and our customers? I think that was one of the biggest things that we had to internalize was we really need to give people the same level of detail, the way we think about things, the way you're supposed to ask certain questions, the way you answer certain questions, how we think about the competitive landscape and really just train people on that stuff. And 
I mean, again, it's one of those things that sounds really obvious if you've, you've done it before, but it's not something that I think we had internalized just because we were so, so deep in it every single day. I think it's also surrounding yourself with a really strong executive team. And I think that's something we've learned as first-time founders. And, you know, we were really lucky we hired Scott, who's our VP of sales, who was able to just increase our leverage when it came to executing on deals and give us a lot more time to focus on the most strategic parts of the business. We're still super involved in the sales process, but I think it's changed a lot. And a lot has to do with like the structure that I think a great executive puts into place. Final question for you both. Let's zoom out into the future. So three to five years from today, what's this big picture vision that you're building? I think ultimately, like Ganesh was saying, the vision has really expanded from something that started as understand and improve your microservices to truly building a system of record for engineering. And if you think about every function that exists today, they all have system of records. So sales has Salesforce, IT has ServiceNow, marketing is Marketo. But engineering has actually never had a system of record that tells you what's being built, who's building it, and whether it's meeting the standards of your team. And I think for the longest time, engineers have been using Jira and Confluence for that. But the reality of it is that those tools aren't built for the software for today, right? Software has become so complex. It's not just microservices, it's databases and pipelines and third-party libraries. And all of these things have owners and subjective qualities about them. And you really need a system of record that is able to encapsulate all of that and then help drive different workflows that engineers have on a day-to-day basis, whether it's getting alerted for an incident or building a new service or just looking up who's the owner of something. And so I think we're solving a, a really critical pain point. And that's why I think this market has been growing so rapidly because it's something that every company is internalizing that once I have 50 to 70 engineers, I need a product like Hortex to actually make sense of what's actually happening in, in my world. Amazing. I love the vision. All right, guys, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are just listening in and want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute, where should they go? You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Share our story there. All right. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Thank you both for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 